Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, so happy to have you with us today. Um, I was saying to the panelists who we have on the show today before uh, we came on the air, I thought it was great that we're getting back to talking about politics, which, you know, was our original mission when we started the show back seven years ago. By the way, uh, we have a big um, milestone coming up for us at Political Rewind. On Sunday, we won't be on the air Sunday, but on July 5th, we will have been on the air for seven years. So we start our eighth year of Political Rewind uh, next Monday. And uh, as many of you know, the show started as a weekly show on Friday afternoons. It was one of the reasons we called it Political Rewind. It was a look back at the week's uh, political news. Uh, and of course, we kept expanding and expanding till now, as you well know, we're on the air five days a week, live at nine with a repeat of the show at two o'clock for those of you who are not available to hear us at 9 a.m. And uh, we owe a lot of that to you who have been so devoted uh, and and so interested in what we do with this show. So I, I just wanted to mention that we're really grateful to all of you out there, and we're excited that we're about to move into our eighth year on Political Rewind. All right, so as I said, we're talking politics today, and we have the perfect panel to do that. Uh, we're joined, as we are on Tuesdays, by senior Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Tamar Hallerman. Uh, Tamar, of course, spent, uh, what, a decade, Tamar, covering Washington uh, before moving down here to Atlanta. So you're well-positioned today to talk to us about the presidential race, which we're going to do, tomorrow, as well as uh, U.S. Senate races, especially here in Georgia. How are you, Tamar? Good, excited. I, I had to brush up on my polls last night in anticipation of this show, and I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, we have a raft of polling uh, that we haven't talked about, and we'll do that in, in the upcoming hour. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor of Political Science at Georgia State University, is also with us. And of course, in addition to her uh, specialty in political science itself, uh, Amy, you've spent a great deal of your career, also studying the federal courts, which will be important today because one of the big news stories this week that will have an impact on the elections that we'll talk about is the Supreme Court decision yesterday on the Louisiana abortion case. So I'm glad you're here today, too, Amy. You doing all right? Yes. Thanks for having me. And I was going to say there, there's nine opinions left and the next ones are going to be released at 10 a.m. So we'll have to see what happens because we've also got the uh, there's the birth control mandate uh, charge to the Affordable Care Act also still to be handed down. There's a yep. question of whether or not Catholic elementary school teachers can file employment discrimination cases and a whole bunch of other stuff. All right, Amy Steigerwald, on top of it. <laughs> Professor Alan Abramowitz is also with us today. Professor Abramowitz, we are always glad to have you here. Um, in addition to your uh, teaching at Emory, the writing, the books, that you've published on election and election trends. Uh, we also should tell people, we haven't talked about it, uh, we're going to talk about a piece that you wrote for uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. You're a pretty frequent contributor to Larry yeah. Sabato's mm -hmm. uh, publication, which 
For anybody who's in the know about politics, Crystal Ball is pretty much must-reading, isn't it, Alan? Oh, absolutely. Um, normally, it comes out every Thursday, but um, lately they've been putting out and, and, uh, issues twice a week, and it's available online, of course. Uh, and anyone who's interested can subscribe to it and get it get it delivered by email for free. All right. Um, let's start, as a matter of fact, uh, talking about that Supreme Court decision. And let's be clear. <clears throat> the, uh, the court was asked to rule on a Louisiana case. Uh, the Louisiana legislature passed a law which said that uh, an abortion provider uh, had to have at least one person on staff who had admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. That was immediately challenged as being restrictive, as, uh, uh, as something that would be a barrier to women having the ability to go in and choose an abortion if they wanted it. Uh, the court took it up yesterday. It was a 5-4 decision, and um, we, several things were interesting about how the court lined up, and we'll talk about what those things are in a second. But just to point out the political nature of this decision— I want to mention what two sides of this had to say in response to it. So the president of the Susan B. Anthony list, which is a, uh, an anti-abortion organization, Marjorie Dannenfelser, said this, it's imperative that we reelect President Trump and our pro-life majority in the U.S. Senate so we can further restore the judiciary, most especially the Supreme Court. President Trump, assisted by the pro-life Senate majority, is keeping his promise to appoint constitutionalist Supreme Court justices and other federal judges. All right, that was that side of it. Uh, at the same time, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, a Democrat, said, Today's Supreme Court decision in June Medical Services versus Russo is a landmark legal victory against radical politicians relentlessly attacking reproductive rights across the country. Roe v. Wade is safe for now. This ruling is an important vindication of the fundamental right to abortion. Well, we'll talk about how, how really, whether the decision really does that or not. But tomorrow, that sets it up. This is going to be a big, big issue as we approach the November election. Absolutely. And and just looking at the, the makeup of the bench right now, you see several justices in their 80s, most notably in the court's uh, liberal wing. You have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I believe is 87 years old. And you also have Justice Breyer, who's in his early 80s. So, so Republicans certainly see an opportunity for Donald Trump if he's elected again. Um, Amy, the, l l let's talk about how this broke. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, once again, surprised many people by siding with the more liberal justices on the court, uh, saying that the Louisiana law was invalid. Um, uh, but he didn't do it on the basis of having it didn't really have anything to do with whether he approves Roe v. Wade or not. He wanted to be consistent with the ruling the court handed down in a very similar case in Texas uh, several years ago, he felt that judicial consistency was crucial. So it doesn't really indicate where he might go when there's a more on-point Roe v. Wade argument, right? 
Um, so I think he actually did address that as well. So I think the first question or the first part of it is that he was very clear that the concept of stare decisis, right, that we let the decision stand. The case that was coming up here was almost identical. The, the statute almost word for word mirrored the one that the court addressed in 2016. So only four years ago in a case called Whole Women's Health called Hellerstedt where they struck it down. The only thing that changed between 2016 and 2020 is really the makeup of the court, right? The law hadn't changed, the precedent hadn't changed, and Chief Justice Roberts was really very clear. Um, he made a statement that we have to, absent uh, sort of exceptional circumstances, treat like cases alike. And this is a like case. So on some level, what perhaps, at least from a judicial perspective, is surprising is that more of the justices didn't agree with that. But that's sort of number one. Secondly, so though, he took a lot of time in his concurrence um, to make clear that he thought the balancing that the four more liberal justices were doing was not, in fact, where it was going. And he made the comment, right, he made very clear that he didn't like the original Texas law that was struck down in the earlier case, that he still thought that that case was wrongly decided, that this was clearly a standard about stare decisis as opposed to sort of if this was on an initial review. And he set up ways in which it was very clear that he would like to go back to a very narrow interpretation of Casey and even potentially overrule Casey. If you read that concurrence really closely, there's a lot of signals in there about what are the types of things that he would be willing to consider. One interesting aspect of this to me, aside from the court's uh, decision, uh, is the fact that it is uh, probably going to uh, uh, create some problems for uh, uh Senator Susan Collins in, in Maine, um, who is one of the endangered Republican incumbents in the Senate elections this year, uh, in that uh, she had justified her votes for President Trump's nominees to the court, namely uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, on the grounds that she thought they would adhere to precedent, uh, that as good judges, you know, that they would not actually try to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade itself, and that they would adhere to precedent in deciding uh, cases related to abortion rights, because that clearly was not the case here. Uh, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh voted, in fact, to reject the the precedent, uh, and uh, they would have and vote on uh, with with the minority here. Um, so that that uh, abortion, which is already a big issue, uh, abortion rights is a big issue in that main Senate election. Uh, and this, if anything, is just going to make it an even bigger issue. Um, and that could, uh, again, you know, make, make it harder for Senator Collins to hold on to that seat. Alan, um, let, me, let me keep the ball in your court for another uh, couple of minutes here. Uh, so the Louisiana case, when it went to the Supreme Court, I don't think, and the, and the law itself, I don't think they were, it was another example of states kind of chipping away in, in smaller ways at Roe v. Wade. This was not an attempt to overturn Roe. So anybody who right. read into that decision that this was somehow an, uh, uh, a comment on Roe has that wrong. But, but here's what's interesting to me, Alan. Um, 
So the pro-choice forces celebrated, nevertheless, a small victory here. But in terms of looking ahead at the election, we see what the Susan B. Anthony list is saying. This is going to energize, I think, a conservative base who really feels, Alan, it's crucial to reelect Trump to make sure that the court has a composition, as, as Tamar pointed out, as more justices are appointed, right. that will eventually rule against Roe. This is an energizing force for conservatives. No question. Um, the conservative side and Republicans have made uh, the makeup of the court and the appointment of judges uh, a major focus. Uh, they, they did that in 2016, um, and they're doing it again in 2020. Uh, one of the most important reasons for keeping the president in office, as you mentioned, is so that he can continue to appoint these conservative judges and eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, abortion has not been a salient an issue up until now, at least on the left. Um, there are other issues that are uh, more salient, although I think it certainly is an important issue um, to, to a lot of Democratic voters. Um, if Roe v. Wade were to ever be overturned, I think you would see a change in that and would suddenly become a huge issue uh, on the left. But I think the assumption on the left has been that Roe v. Wade itself is relatively secure. That may or may not be the case. Um, so, yes, I think this will be uh, uh, an issue that will continue to motivate some or a large number of conservative voters, whether that's enough, um, you know, to overcome many of the other obstacles uh, facing um, the president and Republicans in this election remains to be seen, though. I'm boiling this down a little bit, but a key part of, of Donald Trump's appeal to especially the evangelical right was the fact that he, um, you know, that he was anti-abortion and, and wanted to tear down Roe v. Wade. And so I think you saw a lot of um, evangelical Christians who maybe didn't like a lot about what uh, Donald Trump said or a lot of the things he did in his past, but um, this idea that he would appoint conservative justices to the Supreme Court who would be willing to commit to, to overturning Roe v. Wade was a critical part of their support for him. Um, you know, and, and Professor Abramowitz mentioned Susan Collins, and I think it's just an interesting trend you're seeing over time. Um, we've gotten so polarized in America that that as time goes on, you're, you're no longer seeing this middle where, where there might be anti-abortion Democrats and pro-choice Republicans. All of those people slowly but surely are being voted out in their primaries and in their general elections. You saw earlier this year Dan Lipinski out of Illinois, one of the only um, anti-abortion Democrats left on Capitol Hill who, who lost his primary battle. Uh, Democrats have been going after him. Uh, Pro-abortion Democrats have been going after him for, for years and finally were able to get rid of him. And then Susan Collins now might be in, in dire trouble uh, in terms of getting reelected, in part because of her stance on abortion and, and uh, confirming Brett Kavanaugh specifically. Amy, I want to bring this home to Georgia and get your response, please. Um, uh, the ACLU filed a, a suit. They wanted to enjoin the state of Georgia from putting into effect on January 1st the restrictive abortion law that the legislature passed last year, which essentially outlaws abortion in the state. It went to Judge Stephen Jones, uh, Steve Jones, who, if this is a technicality, but it's worth talking about just briefly. Jones said that he wanted to watch how the Louisiana case was adjudicated in the Supreme Court on this technicality that he wasn't sure whether a case could be brought by an individual seeking an abortion who wanted to file suit, 
or whether an organization, a larger organization, as in this case the ACLU, would, was entitled to bring such a case. And he wanted to hear what the Supreme Court had to say about that. Well, the court clearly made it, uh, it made the point that, yeah, I mean, an organization can file. So now that leaves Steve Jones in a position where he can move forward here in Georgia and rule on whether there should be a permanent injunction to the Georgia law while it makes its way up to court through the to the Supreme Court or whether it should be allowed to go into effect. Have I got that right? Yes, exactly. So there was this sort of separate standing issue. So standing is a doctrine that says you have the ability to bring a case. Um, and then jurisdiction is whether or not the court can hear it. And they don't have jurisdiction if you the plaintiff doesn't have standing. So number one, that allows – so the law has been enjoined in the state of Georgia, but now the suit itself can go forward. And those suits are really interesting because we've got similar laws out of Alabama – um, in other places that were passed around the same time as the Georgia law, in that there is no way to read the current precedent and uphold the Georgia law. The possibility that we saw here in what the um, sort of four more conservative justices were arguing in the current case that just got decided in June Medical was that, hey, the facts on the ground do seem to be a little bit different. For example, there is a doctor in Louisiana that already has admitting privileges and does abortions. There are other ones who may be able to get it. And so this kind of bar to this obstacle that's going to put in place is maybe not so true. There's no way to argue with the Georgia law that that's in fact true, right? It bans abortion, basically from the time that a woman knows that she is pregnant. And so you can't in any way distinguish it from the current precedent. Rather, it's a case that sort of, as your comment to um, Alan earlier, is designed explicitly to try to get the courts to have to reconsider Roe, to reconsider this question of whether or not this fundamental right for a woman to be able to choose an abortion even exists. And those politics are really very important. I think the other side of it is that sort of, as Alan noted, the pro-life movement didn't exist prior to the court handing down Roe v. Wade. It was a direct response and what caused um, everyone to sort of gear up. And so we see that still playing. Um, I was struck by the fact that President, or sorry, Vice President Pence actually tweeted yesterday uh, the comment that the one thing that's clear is we need more conservative justices. So sort of getting rid of the pretense that this is about uh, not judicial activists, that this is about sort of law and order, strict readings of the Constitution, but instead there are Republican and Democratic judges. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with that going forward on both sides. Ellen, so, I want to give you the last word before we move on. Yeah, um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, after the Georgia case decides. I think it's almost certain that the Georgia law is going to be overturned. Um, but I also suspect that... Uh, looking at some of the decisions handed down already this term and then earlier, that Justice Roberts really does not want to deal with this. He does not want to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, what Roberts seems to be trying to do, is, and some, some have argued, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is he's trying to save the Republican Party and the conservative movement from itself. Um, because I think he understands, and this, I think you saw this in the in the. Uh, in the gay rights decision, I think you saw it in this Louisiana decision. Um, he recognizes, I think, that 
to, to overturn Roe v. Wade uh, would uh, create huge problems for the Republican Party going forward. It would, it would energize and activate uh, those who support abortion rights, uh, who actually are a majority uh, of the country, at least uh, who support the fundamental right to an abortion, maybe with some limitations. So, um, so I, I don't, if it does eventually make it, I think Roberts is going to try to prevent that from happening. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I, having, having to make a decision. Okay, we got to get to a break. I do want to read one quick thing. We're not going to have time to talk about it, but I thought this was so strange. Kaylee McEnany, the new White House press secretary, had a really strange comment about the, this decision yesterday. Here's what she said, quote, Instead of valuing fundamental democratic principles, unelected justices have intruded on the sovereign prerogatives of state governments by imposing their own policy policy preference in favor of abortion to override legitimate abortion safety regulations. Let that sink in. The president's press secretary thinks that the Supreme Court may not be legitimate because they're not elected. We're going to take a break and come back in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. couple of quick program notes before we continue our conversation today. Uh, tomorrow on the show, we're going to uh, have uh, on the media managing editor and co-host Brooke Gladstone join me and AJC editor Kevin Riley to talk about a really thorny issue that all journalists are dealing with right now, especially as we move toward November. President Trump loves making outrageous, controversial statements. He does not have any concern with whether they're true or not. So how do we as journalists, how do we on this show where we try so hard to have balanced representations of various sides of an issue, how do we deal with that as we move toward November? Uh, Brooke, Kevin, and I will explore that issue, fairness in an age that seems to be beyond all norms we've ever known. That's tomorrow on the show. Thursday, um, given how much we're all learning about viruses and the language of viruses, we reached into our archives to pull out a show that I think you'll really be fascinated by. We're going to talk to Dr. Bill Fagey. Bill Fagey is the former director of the Centers for Disease Control. He was the man who led the fight to eradicate smallpox. And we're going to talk about how he uh, ran that battle and turned smallpox into the only disease in human history to ever be eradicated. So that's over the next two days on Political Rewind. Okay, now we're back with uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz, uh, Professor Amy Steigerwald, and senior AJC reporter Tamara Hellerman. Uh, Tamara, let's, real quick, uh, we've got COVID-19 numbers that are very uh, disturbing here in Georgia. Uh, in, from June 21st until this weekend, we had more than 11,000 new cases of COVID-19, uh, up 60% from the week before. Over the past few days, there have been more than 2,000 cases a day, and so this thing is really surging again. 
And I want to talk about it in terms of the, the Governor Kemp, to his credit, has been wearing a mask everywhere. He's going on a tour uh, to promote mm. mask wearing. But uh, there are many public health officials who think he hasn't moved far enough. All right. I want to put all this in a political context and start with you, uh, Tamar. 538 looked at a compilation of polling to see how Americans, we don't have Georgia figures, but how Americans are responding to COVID-19. And here's what they their compilation of polls show as of today. Um, asked whether they were somewhat concerned about getting infected, 36% said they're somewhat concerned, 29% said very concerned, and then 21% said not very, and 13% uh, said not at all. Uh, a majority of Americans are very worried about the effect the virus is having on the economy. 56% of Americans disapprove of the way the president has handled coronavirus. 41% approve. So clearly tomorrow, uh, the virus is going to have a big impact on the presidential election and certainly on how uh, we vote here in the state of Georgia for uh, some of the people on the ballot. Sure. And Governor Kemp has a tough line to walk right now because masks are becoming increasingly politicized right now, even though a lot of um, work from public health officials is showing that they really do work in preventing the spread of, of COVID-19. So how do you deal if you're a Republican governor like Brian Kemp, um, if a lot of folks in your own base are really wary about wearing masks or see it as, um, you know, you're a liberal snowflake if you wear a mask. So he has a tough line to walk. And he's even acknowledged the political reality of requiring people to wear masks in Georgia, as you've seen in other states like California, where I believe you need a mask to enter a store or a restaurant. Um, he mentioned how it's really untenable in Georgia right now um, to, to require that. Um, but he's still going around and, and flying around and telling people the importance of that. And, and he's lucky in that he's not on the ballot for, for two more years. But Kelly Leffler, his hand-picked, uh, you know, his hand-picked Senate candidate is. Um, you know, you also have David Perdue. So so there are real repercussions here for Republicans. And the problem is that the, the tone is being set by the top, you know, at the top by Donald Trump. And there's very little Brian Kemp can do about that. And so much of how Georgia Republicans perform this year will be tied to not what Brian Kemp does, but to what Donald Trump does. Right. That, that's exactly right. Um, I think I think the other big problem that Governor Kemp has is that he, along with um, the governors of states like Florida and Texas and Arizona, uh, were among the governors who were of the very first to, to start to reopen their state's economies, to start to uh, drop restrictions, drop uh, requirements on uh, social distancing, allowing uh, restaurants and, and bars and other sorts of establishments to reopen where social distancing is not being practiced very effectively. And now what we're seeing is that the virus is spiking, or infections are spiking uh, in those very same states. And uh, uh, so clearly tied to this er uh, premature decisions to reopen when none of these states, states including uh, Georgia, had come close to meeting the CDC guidelines uh, that had been set up uh, to supposedly uh, instruct states on when and how to reopen. Um, so I think I think that's a problem. What they were doing, however, is they were following President Trump's wishes. Uh, remember, the president was pushing very hard for states to reopen. Uh, he saw uh, getting the economy going again as the key to his winning uh, the election. 
And so he was pushing very hard uh, for uh, states to uh, start to reopen regardless of whether they had met the CDC guidelines. Um, and, and he was being very critical and encouraging uh, protests against governors who were keeping their states shut down, especially in the state of Michigan, where we saw uh, these angry protesters showing up at the state capitol. So, uh, so by aligning himself very much with President Trump, I think uh, Governor Kemp and some of these other governors have put themselves in a predicament and put some of the Republican candidates running this year in their states in a predicament. Uh, and what we're seeing in the polling right now in Georgia is that uh, right now, uh, if you look at the polling average, uh, Biden is actually slightly ahead uh, of, uh, of Trump in Georgia. The Senate, both Senate races look like they're likely to be very competitive. Uh, and Governor Kemp should probably be very uh, happy that he's not on the ballot this year. And the other big issue that, of course, Governor Kemp has to deal with that is not, in fact, something that is dealt with at the national level is August is coming. And in August, we have K through 12 schools reopening in some form and all the universities. And that in and of itself is a huge deal that also ties in with the math. So there is already uh, K through 12, even though we're talking about that the state is not requiring mask wearing, all of the notes that are coming out, at least from APS, are that it will be required in the schools. All the children will have to wear them at all times. The teachers will have to wear them. There is a raging debate going on at all the different university campuses. Emory is private, so they've got a bit more ability, and they already have said that you have to wear masks at the University System of Georgia. There is a lot of fight. Both uh, faculty, staff, and students have been really pushing to try to make uh, masks required on campus, particularly because it is very, I mean, you can't social distance really in a classroom. Um, you can a little bit. They're trying to cut down the class sizes, but these issues are not quite as simple as they sound. It's not just about going into a store. It's not just about going into a restaurant school. And that's the one where I think you're going to find this tension between that's a step too far and, oh, there's no way that we're going to be able to do this without mask wearing. So um, tomorrow. All of us on this, everybody who's on the show today has been following Georgia politics for a long, long time. And all of us have watched and said, whoa, Georgia's turning purple. Oh, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year. But this time it feels real. I mean, Alan's Alan's reciting of of, uh, polling, which shows that Joe Biden and President Trump are essentially tied, maybe Biden a little bit ahead of Trump in some of the polling, that that John Ossoff may be in a virtual dead heat right now with David Perdue. This feels different, yes? Maybe. <laughs> In general, I'm really skeptical whenever people tell me, whenever people say that, that Georgia's turning purple or Georgia's turning blue. And what, what I always tell people is, yes, it's possible, but it's so much easier for Republicans to turn out their people. In general, there are just more Republican voters in Georgia. They tend to vote more. But 
This year does feel different because of the coronavirus, because of how much the left hates Donald Trump, because of all of these racial justice protests. The, the left is extremely uh, motivated this year. The question is, I mean, we're, we're seeing this right now. Polls are a snapshot in time, as, as we always say. Um, the question is whether this can be sustained till November. It, it looks like that's very much possible, but a lot can change between now and then. And we don't know what this virus is going to look like. We don't know if these protests are going to be sustained. And I think, to me, that's the big question. Well, uh, I expect the uh, presidential and Senate races in Georgia will all be very competitive. And uh, I wouldn't want to make a prediction right now about uh, uh, who is actually going to come out on top in those races. But I, I do feel pretty confident in saying that they're going to be decided by a very narrow margin. Um, one thing we can look at as an indication, in addition to the polling, is we can look at what happened in 2018, uh, where uh, we had a very close election for governor, uh, uh, you know, where, where, where we had uh, Stacey Abrams uh, coming within a couple of percentage points of knocking off Brian Kemp in an, for an open seat, um, and, and a big surge in Democratic turnout. Another thing we can look at is what happened in the primary that we just had, where the number of Democratic voters exceeded the number of Republican voters. Um, and that was true e even in, for example, this, in, the, in the 7th Congressional District where both parties had competitive primaries. Um, Democrats made up about 57 to 58 percent of the voters in that Congressional District, which has been a Republican district. In the 6th Congressional District, where Lucy McBath was unopposed, um, but she got way more votes uh, being unopposed than all the Republican seeking to challenge her got uh, uh, in, in the primary. So primary turnout doesn't uh, exactly predict what's going to happen in the general election. We have to be careful about that. But it's, it's certainly, I think, a, a worrisome sign for Republicans that uh, despite all the issues uh, with the voting in this election and problems with people getting their absentee ballots, the problems with voting on Election Day, that nonetheless we had a record-setting turnout and that there were a lot more voters on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. I think the other thing that's really interesting, um, I actually have decided that it's not that we're becoming a purple state, but it's that we're a twist cone. It's a blue and orange twist because the two sides are incredibly <laughs> polarized, but they're twisting up. And sure, at some point, I guess that becomes purple. But I think that's also a really important part of this story. If you look at sort of particularly the new Fox News poll that came out and the breakdowns on it, all in all of the different categories, it's completely polarized. It is you are either over on this side or you're on the other side, and there's not a lot going on in between. And so it's really this kind of hardened sides, but a lot of the demographic changes that we've seen in Georgia. Gwinnett County has for forever been the fastest growing county in the country. And a lot of the population gains that it has made has not been the sort of traditional suburban whites. It has been instead younger people uh, of all different races, ethnicities, et cetera, all different languages. And that, I think, is showing it. And those groups generally go Democrat. And I think part of, again, what we're seeing in Georgia that really mirrors what's happening more nationally is the fact that the Republican Party is struggling to bring younger people, struggling to bring women, right, particularly suburban women. It's struggling to bring uh, college-educated folks. It's struggling to bring people of color 
into its umbrella and it's causing that base to really harden. So I think sort of going back to this, one of the issues that Trump is really struggling with is that since he's been elected, his ceiling is about 42 percent, not the floor, the ceiling. That's a lot of room for somebody else to jump in. And what we're not seeing in the campaign is an attempt to raise that ceiling, but rather just solidify the floor. Uh, there's a couple things that are that are worth mentioning about Trump and his kind of positives and negatives in Georgia. I think that the best thing the Trump campaign has going for them is the people who who love Donald Trump love Donald Trump, and they're going to be so motivated in November to come out and support them. Another thing they might have going for them is that younger people in general seem to be less enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but especially Bernie Sanders or some of the other candidates um, who are vying for the, the primary nomination. That might be able to help them if young people stay home in November. But a couple of things to be troubling. You saw the Trump campaign recently uh, buy television ad time in Georgia, you know, a state that hasn't turned blue since 1992. That's a bad sign for somebody who won this state by five points in, in 2016. Um, you know, also going to be looking very closely at suburban voters. We were talking about Gwinnett County now majority minority. And, and those are exactly um, the, the places that Trump needs to win. Those people in the middle who might not be the most enthusiastic Trump people, but, but who leaned his way, um, you know, in other states and who they desperately need uh, this time around. And, and signs right now are, are not good on that front. Alan, I, I know you want to jump in. I want to first, though, promote your uh, piece in The Hill, which will, uh, Sam Burmistaz, if you'll post that on social media, I, I, it, it refers to exactly what you just <laughs> talked about. I love the headline. If Georgia primary was an attempted voter suppression, it failed badly. But what's mm-hmm. interesting about that, I'll make, make a comment, and then you talk about that and whatever else you had in mind. Um, so the White House, as, as, as President Trump's, uh, approval ratings and his polling plummets, which it has been, has been doing. I mean, it's a, Amy talks about 42%. There are some polls that show him just cracking 40%. It's interesting that just in the last 24 hours, the White House's or the campaign's new argument is, yes, but our voters are so much more motivated. They're so much more energized to go to the polls and vote. So go ahead. Uh, I, I don't think that's accurate. Um, and, you know, I think the turnout in the, in the Georgia primary is just one indication of that. But it, it is true that, you know, when you ask people about uh, uh, why they are uh, voting the way they do uh, or plan to vote the way they do, that Trump supporters will say, uh, you know, pretty overwhelmingly that they are voting for President Trump, that, um, you know, they, they want to get the reason they want to vote is so they can show their support for the president. Uh, on the other side. Um, Democrats don't say the same thing to the same degree about Joe Biden. Um, it's not about I'm I, I really want to vote for Joe Biden. I really want to show my support for Joe Biden. What it's about for Democrats is more I want to vote against Donald Trump. I want to get Donald Trump out of office. Um, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Uh, I think Democrats are about as motivated to turn Trump out of office as Republicans are to keep him in office. Uh, so I think that that negative motivation, and it's not unusual in any election where you have an incumbent running. You know, the incumbent, especially a presidential election, the incumbent is the focus. The the uh, the, the election is over, you know, overwhelmingly a referendum on the incumbent. That's why I think the Trump campaign and the president need to be very very worried right now. When you have an approval rating of 41, 42 percent, 
uh, you know, it's very difficult to, to, to win. Uh, and it, it almost doesn't matter who's running against you. One thing I want to mention uh, before I bump it to Amy is, is just, um, you know, in, in 2016, Hillary Clinton was a really unique opponent for somebody like Donald Trump, especially compared to a person like Joe Biden. Um, voters, you know, on, on the right were trained to hate Hillary Clinton for 25 years. So a lot of folks who ended up voting for Donald Trump, maybe they weren't in that super enthusiastic Donald Trump category, but they really hated Hillary Clinton. And their vote for Trump was a vote against Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden doesn't necessarily have those same negatives attached to him. Um, you know, maybe his, his best or his worst qualities, he might be kind of eh to a lot of voters, which maybe for suburban Republicans who really hate Donald Trump, that's still enough that they'll still go for, for Joe Biden, especially now that Donald Trump has a record for the last four years. No, I would definitely agree with what Samara is saying. And you hear that from a lot of people. He's He's Uncle Joe, and you might roll your eyes at Uncle Joe, but you're still happy to have him at all the family gatherings, and you know that, you know, he's a good guy, and he doesn't sort of inspire that type of backlash, which Hillary Clinton definitely did. And I think it's, you know, we can't overlook the fact of how people respond to certain candidates, because Hillary also got a lot of backlash from groups, um, particularly large segments of women who you would expect would support her, but actually did not, and had lots of things that they sort of responded viscerally to, which also affected that. And I think, you know, as a political scientist, I am thrilled to see all of these people turning out and wanting to participate in all of this. And I think what Georgia is going to have to do, though, to sort of maybe give some friendly pushback on um, Allen's piece is that People were waiting in line upwards of eight hours to vote, right? They stayed, but that's a lot to ask from people to try to turn out to vote, right? They, there, was a, there was a story that someone did that was super cute that was talking about the different types of chairs that people brought with them to their precinct. But on the other hand, it wasn't cute at all because why should you have to bring a chair with you to vote knowing you're going to be in line that long? And so I think that's something that the state's really going to have to address before then um, to make sure that the November goes well. I got to get to another break. Before I do, Alan, I want to go back to your comments about, you know, where the enthusiasm lies. Or right. My saying that's what the Trump campaign is trying to gin up right now. But Fox News poll uh, like other polling, had these had this data um, asked whether the, what their biggest motivation in voting for the president was in the most recent Fox poll. Fifty three percent of Biden supporters said it was their fear that the other candidate, Donald Trump, would win. But asked about how enthusiastic they are about the candidate, only thirty eight percent of Biden supporters said they were enthusiastic. 57% of Trump supporters said they were. So that does give us some sense that right now the Biden folks do, don't they, uh, Alan? And you can answer this before we break. They've got to get some more excitement going around their candidate. Is that a fair way to read that? Um, I mean, I think Biden's doing fine, actually. If you look at the polling right okay. now, I mean, he's and, – and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about his hiding in the basement – uh, I think the, the Biden campaign right now is following a very deliberate strategy of keeping him under wraps. Uh, he's not deliberately not going out, not doing interviews, uh, not doing very many events. And he's being attacked by the Trump campaign for that. Trump's out there. He's visible. He's holding rallies. Um, he's speaking to reporters. And the, 
it, you know, I think from the Biden, Biden campaign's perspective, the more Trump is out there and visible, the better it is for Biden. And, and so far, at least, that does seem right. to be the case. Eleanor Bramowitz gets the last word in this segment. Let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Alan Abramowitz, Tamar Hallerman, Amy Steigerwald with me. And we get into the last segment of today's uh, political rewind. Tamar, I, I wanted to, it, I've noticed something. Tell me, I may have missed things here and there. But there was a time when virtually every news release I saw from David Perdue's office uh, was in some way a uh, statement from Perdue supporting the latest thing that President Trump had said, was doing whatever. It, it was, he was constantly trying to show his devotion to President Trump. I think, I have not seen a lot of news releases lately <laughs> uh, in which Purdue has talked about Trump. They're doing a lot of promotion of their own work, perfectly reasonable and, and exactly what you want to do. Whereas Kelly Leffler is in a somewhat different position. I haven't seen a lot of her saying, you know, Trump's wonderful about the way he's handled the virus, the way he's handled uh, racial uh, 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 disparities in the country right now. But she's got more to prove right now than he does to hold on to her base. I just think that's kind of interesting, Tamar. We saw David Perdue early on, even before he had a, a Democratic opponent in John Ossoff, talking about radical socialists and radical Democrats. And, and that's the message that, that he seems to be sticking with. He, he now talks about privileged John Ossoff is the term that you see a lot from him. But he doesn't have nearly as much to prove as Kelly Leffler does right now. He did not face a primary challenge this year um, from Republicans, and he's extraordinarily popular among the, the Republican base. Kelly Leffler, on the other hand, has somebody on her right flank in, in Doug Collins. And so uh, whereas having to, you know, when she was appointed, that the thought was that she'd be able to appeal to a lot of suburban women in the middle. Um, she doesn't have the luxury of being able to do that right now. She has to spend a lot of time uh, making sure that, that Doug Collins doesn't outflank her too much on her right. So it's all a question of who supports Donald Trump more. I think Tamara is exactly right on that. And I think the other issue is that in some ways, Purdue is trying to stay out of the fray of the fight that's going on between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, because this sort of intra-party fight does nothing to aid either his re-election chances or, to be perfectly blunt, Donald Trump's re-election chances, nor does it help what's going on in the very fierce battles in uh, the 6th and 7th congressional districts and in a number of uh, general assembly seats. And so part of the issue that you're seeing is that that fight and the fact that really the um, Republican senatorial committee wasn't able to clear the field for Kelly Leffler after Governor Kemp appointed her is, I think, having mm -hmm. a lot of blowback and making it a difficult path for Purdue to actually walk to figure out how to position himself um, against these strong Democratic challengers. Yeah, I, I think Kelly Leffler's in a completely different position from David Perdue right now, uh, in that she is in, uh, broiled in this jungle primary, uh, where um, you know her, her goal right now has to be just to make it past the first round. Uh, and it's not at all clear that she will. Um, so she's got a very tough battle with Doug Collins just to get into the runoff. Uh, and in order to defeat Doug Collins, she has to focus on the Republican base. Uh, so her messaging is entirely uh, about uh, her conservative credentials, about how she uh, 
supports President Trump, uh, how she supports law enforcement. She supports the military. She's tough on China. All the issues she's bringing up right now and everything she's emphasizing is about her uh, is intended to appeal to the conservative base of the Republican Party. She can't think about a general election campaign yet. Uh, so it's very a very different uh, situation. I'm, I'm stunned also by the amount of money she must be spending right now. Uh, we've been seeing her ads running even before the June primary. She, she was spending a, a, a huge amount of money advertising before the June primary to the point where I'm sure a lot of voters were surprised to find out when they went to the polls or got their ballot that she wasn't on it. Uh, that race is not even going to be on the ballot until November. So, uh, so it's just a, it's a very the jungle primary creates a totally different dynamic from a normal election. What's also interesting is the amount of time, money, and energy that um, Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins have been spending to endear themselves specifically to Donald Trump, not even to the voters of Georgia. Um, you know, we all know that Donald Trump was pushing for Doug Collins to get appointed to that seat. That didn't end up happening. And it's been interesting to watch the kind of public and private dances from these two, <laughs> these two lawmakers to try and endear themselves. And, and I saw this when, when Mike Pence came to Georgia, gosh, a month ago now. You saw Kelly Loeffler with him on the airplane and, and kind of the, um, the efforts on behalf of the Trump administration to also be impartial because they invited Doug Collins to come meet them on the runway, to come be in the car, just him and, and Mike Pence, to make sure that they weren't playing favorites here. And luckily enough for David Perdue, he doesn't have to spend energy trying to prove himself to Donald Trump. He's already in that inner circle. Uh, his voters know that he's with the president, and he doesn't have to worry about that. Um, when it also comes to getting in the middle of the Leffler-Collins primary, or not the primary, I'm sorry, the, the jungle election, it makes sense for him to not want to get in the middle of that. He has to work with both of these people right now. And, and it's a real question, who's going to ultimately um, end up in that runoff? Why would he ever want to step in that? He works with both of them right now in D.C. If I was him, I wouldn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole either. <laughs> Ellen, I want to go back to Senate race, what we call Senate race number one, which is the David Perdue race uh, as yep. we get close to uh, the end of the show. Um, you've got We do have a libertarian uh, who's going to be on the ballot in, in that race, Shane Hazel is running for the U.S. Senate. So if you've got Purdue and Ossoff continue, if it moves forward, that they continue to be neck and neck, what impact does a Shane Hazel have on the race? And then if there's a runoff, what, what are we? what's the dynamic that comes into play there? Yeah, that's something we haven't heard much speculation about, but it's a, it is entirely possible that neither uh, Purdue nor Ossoff will, will, will reach 50%. Uh, and, and because of the libertarian, if the libertarian gets even, you know, just two percent, um, which has been you know, about the average vote for libertarian candidates has been in that two to three percent vicinity, uh, and it goes to a runoff. The runoff would be what in January, um, along with the runoff from the jungle primary, and then all. And we could have two Georgia Senate races being decided in January. Two seats that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, Amy, let me have you jump in, but we're running out of time. I was going to say, just the one thing that's really interesting on the Fox News poll is that the the votes that seem to be going, at least right now, to the libertarian are actually from the liberate and the moderate, not the conservative. And so I think that's also something to watch for, that that could be hurting Ossoff more than Purdue. Right. All right. Amy Steigerwald gets the last word. We are running out of time for Political Rewind today. Tomorrow, Brooke Gladstone of On the Media, Kevin Riley, and I talk about fairness in a strange election. I'm Bill Nygut. 
Take care. Please stay healthy. Thank you, panel. See you all tomorrow.